You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. My guest today was diagnosed with long COVID and he's trying to help other long haulers. He's Virginia Democratic Senator Tim Kaine. Senator Kaine, a very warm welcome back to Washington Post Live. Francis, I'm really happy we could talk about this today. Well, we're very glad to have you. And before we start, a quick word to our audience. We would like you to join the conversation, so please tweet your questions to the Twitter handle at PostLive, and we'll try to get to a couple of them during the show. Senator Kane, let me start with a sort of big step back question. Um, what kinds of symptoms are we talking about when we talk about long COVID? And what are the, what's the range and how big a health problem is this? Um, Francis, you, you started off with two of the tough questions. The range is broad and the scope of the problem we're still trying to determine. So let me tackle scope and then I'll tackle the range of symptoms. So the estimates that I'm seeing suggest that anywhere between five and 30% of people who get COVID could have persistent long COVID symptoms. Now, obviously that is a very broad range. I, the, the numbers I've seen in the United States suggest that about 80 million people have been diagnosed with COVID, but many were never diagnosed. They got COVID before there was testing, for example. So it's in all likelihood, the number of Americans who've had COVID are an, is in excess of 100 million. So it could be 5 million long COVID sufferers. It could be 30 million. And we still have to do more to really figure that out. Um, and then the second issue that you asked is, well, what are the, the symptoms? And they, they come into different buckets. So there's neurological symptoms. I have a nerve tingling sensation that kicked in right when I got COVID in March of 2020 and has never gone away. Others um, have a loss of taste or smell or a light sensitivity. So it's a vision uh, issue or tinnitus ringing in their ear. These all seem kind of related. Um, there's probably nothing wrong with, with uh, my, my skin or somebody else's taste buds, but the way the brain interprets sense data kind of gets scrambled a little bit. There's respiratory conditions that some people have. These are very serious. People who have had no um, past history of heart issues find that their heart rates race up and down in random and troubling ways. Uh, pulmonary and respiratory problems are pretty common. People who got the respiratory form of COVID and they don't ever feel like they've really been able to come back to a place where they're not short of breath. Uh, and then intense fatigue, people who are, you know, 10K or marathon runners who now have a hard time walking around the block without getting too tired. I visited with some long COVID uh, patients in, in Appalachian, Virginia last week and heard stories about this intense fatigue. There are other symptoms as well, but what they tell us is that just as COVID is kind of a multi-system attacker, um, long COVID also can just manifest itself in very, very different ways among different people. So you've pinpointed a huge problem here that we have a vast range of symptoms that affects people differently. Um, some estimates I've seen from the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, match with yours somewhere. I think they're saying between 7.7 .7 million and 23 million people could already have been diagnosed. Do you expect those numbers to go up? Um, I, I do, um, because I think we're, I mean, first, there are still people getting COVID. Even, even after vaccination, people are getting new variants of COVID. Now, we don't know yet 
Um, if you've been vaccinated, we, we sort of know that if you get COVID, your symptoms are likely to be milder. That's great. But um, what we don't necessarily know is the correlation between mild COVID symptoms and whether you get long COVID or not. I had a very mild case of COVID in late March of 2020 into the early part of April. And, I, and then I gave COVID to my wife and she had a very mild case too. Her symptoms had been gone within 10 days. A particular symptom that I had this nerve tingling thing has stayed. So you have people with mild cases who have long COVID and then you have people who've had very serious uh, COVID cases, been on ventilator for months and they have no long COVID symptoms. I think as a general rule, what we're finding is the more serious your case of COVID, the more likely you are to have long COVID symptoms. There does seem to be a little bit of a, of a gender bias in long COVID where about 60% of people who are reporting long COVID are women rather than men. But again, Francis, I'll just say, I think we're really at the front end of this, even though we've been in the, in the research mode about long COVID for about a year now, um, we know the questions to ask. We're, we're getting some data back, but there's a lot more to do to really understand this and then provide relief to people. So I want to take you to a policy question. We're seeing across much of the country a fairly precipitous drop in numbers of cases and also hospitalizations. How do you put the pressure on people to keep interested in long COVID? Well, you know, it's, that's a really good question because, you know, probably for, for good reasons, you know, we, we like to say problems are in the rearview mirror. Let's focus on, the, on tomorrow's one. Um, long COVID isn't going away. Uh, Francis, I've been saying about COVID that even when all the health officials declare that the public emergency is over, the two pieces that are going to continue are long COVID and the combined mental health impacts of a million people dead and people having lost jobs and lost businesses, and obviously the mental health impacts of those who are dealing with long COVID years after they had COVID. So these are the two pieces that are gonna stay at it. I will say, um, I feel pretty optimistic about us not losing focus on this because uh, my colleagues and I, I'm on the health committee in the Senate, Health Education and Labor Pension, we hear about this from people wherever we go. I, maybe particularly since I've, I've chosen to talk a little bit about my own symptoms. Folks come up to me on the road, they tell me about it, but I, I think my colleagues in the Senate, they're hearing about this from their colleagues at home, from their hospitals and healthcare providers, um, from employers. You know, what do I need to do to provide an accommodation to let this, uh, you know, really good employee continue with me, even though they're still laboring under long COVID symptoms. I don't think the, the long COVID community is going to be silent and they're not going to let us forget them. I think that's probably true, but at the same time, we're seeing political pressure to um, get rid of mask mandates and any other mitigation methods. Are you concerned we're letting our guard down too quickly? Well, I, I, am, <clears throat> I am concerned. I try to follow CDC guidance. So when the CDC says we can lift mask use in parts of the country where COVID risk is real low, I, I follow their advice. I think I'm probably, I, I will say just out of extra precaution, I think I'm probably going to be wearing masks on airplanes when I travel for a while, just out of an abundance of caution. Um, but um, I, I, I do think the interest of my colleagues in the research into long COVID, and, and we're talking about research into causes, but the interesting thing about this, Francis, is we're also doing researches into treatments and cures, and we might get some really good treatment and cure answers before we get causes answers. 
if we can provide uh, um, a treatment that reduces somebody's symptoms, even if we don't know exactly, well, why did COVID produce that symptom? Then we should move ahead with, uh, with uh, cures and treatments. Um, my colleagues in a bipartisan way have been supportive in terms of putting money into this research, and I think they're gonna continue to, to be willing to do that. I want to ask about your, one, your bill in one moment, but first of all, more than a year ago, Congress put 1.15 billion into long COVID research at NIH. Yes. Is that the only sort of research we should be doing into long COVID or is there room and energy and uh, power behind other forms of research? Um, Francis, there is there is room for more. We were, we were glad to do that in the American Rescue Plan. And as you know, that passed in the Senate by one vote. Um, it passed by one vote. But every time we now have a hearing, uh, before the health committee and I have Dr. Walensky or Dr. Fauci there, they know I'm always gonna ask them the long COVID question. Tell me about the <laughs> research, what are we finding out? What do we still have to determine? But you have groups like Survivor Corps and others who are producing really rich um, bodies of at least, you know, patient experiences and, and descriptions that, that can be used by researchers too. So all the research doesn't have to happen at NIH. Many hospitals that I know of are doing long COVID research. I was at Ballad Health, which is one of the large healthcare systems that serves Appalachia, Southwestern Virginia and Northeastern Tennessee. I was there last week during a Senate recess. They have multiple hospitals and they also have physician practice groups and they're doing their own you know, internal assessment of a long COVID clinic that they started last year and what patient experiences are, things that seem to be working things that don't seem to be working. So I think the uh, NIH research has to happen and I hope we're gonna provide more funding for it, but there's some really good research out there that's being conducted either by patient advocacy groups or um, by uh, healthcare providers, pharmaceutical companies are taking a look at this. So we just have to you know, stay at it and then spread to the entire community, providers and patients and their families and employers, the results of, of what we're finding. So we have the 1.15 billion. Um, a year ago, the Biden administration made sure that long COVID could be considered a disability under the ADA, yes. and more recently started a sort of interagency approach to long COVID. What specifically does your bill, the bill you introduced with Senators Markey and Duckworth, add to that? Francis, my bill does basically four things, and some of it uh, has been taken up by the administration in their recent executive plan about COVID, but the, but the four basic things are these. We need to do the best job we can in gathering all patient data and experiences on long COVID into databases that can easily be searched for patterns and information. We have to protect people's confidentiality, obviously, but this is a pet peeve of mine before COVID that we have public health data systems in this country that silo, here's the data that's at the local level, here's the state level data, here's federal data, here's private provider data, and we often don't pull it together in ways that enable us to more quickly discern patterns and, and then use those patterns to move to the second part of my bill, which is research. Researching into causes and cures and treatments is the second pillar of the bill. The third pillar is dissemination of information. Obviously, as we, as we get research and start to answer some of the questions, why is it? 60% at least in terms of the reporting that are women. Why are there differences between young people's experiences and older people's experiences? 
Um, but also, um, what are the cures that work? We have to disseminate that information. That's pillar three and disseminate it to, you know, not only patients and their families, but to uh, providers and employers, because I think employers are going to be faced with this issue. Someone may not be qualified for a permanent disability under Social Security, but they, under the Americans with Disabilities Act, they, they would be entitled to an accommodation at their workplace so that they could effectively work even though they're dealing with long COVID symptoms. The fourth pillar of our bill is patient support. Can we help people, if they are disabled, to make a claim for Social Security disability or to craft a request for an accommodation at the workplace? And, and Francis, as you know, this raises some challenging issues. Um, what if um, you had COVID, but you were never diagnosed with COVID because you got it early and there was insufficient testing at the time. So you never had a, a COVID diagnosis, but you had COVID. Then you've been vaccinated. So now you're trying to establish a claim for disability. A test would show that your system has some antibodies, but well, is that from vaccination or is that because you had COVID? There are some thorny little issues that come up in trying to make a determination about somebody's status. Are they dealing with a disability or not? And we need to provide patient support for people as they can figure that out or support for employers as they try to determine how can they make a reasonable accommodation for somebody who they want to keep on staff because they're a good worker, but they, they've got long COVID symptoms that require some adjustment. I promised we'd bring in questions from our, our listeners and we have one here that I'd like to ask you. It comes from, let's see, Michael Sieverts. And he says, have we learned much yet about best practices for the long COVID clinic? Boy, what a great question. That's why I like to do these because I get asked a question that I haven't thought of. Um, many of the providers, um, uh, Sloan Kettering and others in New York were early. Um, the ballot health system in Virginia is early. Many providers are setting up their own clinics and I bet that there is a network of providers with long COVID clinics and they're sharing information back and forth. So to Michael's question, I suspect that's going on but I don't know for sure. So that question makes me want to now talk to um, the clinics that I'm aware of that have been at the front end of this and see how they're sharing best practices. Um, great question. So now I've got a question that I can ask somebody that I wouldn't <laughs> have thought of. So I want to ask you about your personal story, but also about your role, because I have to say, as soon as this uh, announcement went out, I saw people on Twitter appreciating hearing from you, but also some very negative comments of people saying long COVID doesn't exist, people didn't have a yeah. diagnosis, and some very, very, there's a lot of gender bias in this. What does it mean yeah. to be a, a senator and a man who has got these symptoms, and what role do you believe you have in rectifying some of these beliefs? So, so Francis, it, it's actually the, the negative comment that you report is the reason that I decided to talk about it. So when, when I got COVID, again, I had a mild case. We were up here working on the CARES Act and there was community spread at the front end of the pandemic before we were even aware of it. I had very non-standard symptoms. So the, the standards at the beginning, the symptoms tended to be respiratory, loss of uh, taste or smell. I didn't have any of that. I wasn't fatigued. But what I, what I got hit with was a blizzard of allergic reactions. This is late March, 2020. I noticed a lot of pollen on my car. So I thought, okay, I've got pink eye. I've got rashes that randomly appear and go away. I have this nerve tingling thing. Maybe it's just hay fever gone wild DC in March. 
But then I went home and immediately my wife got COVID for me. We were quarantining together and her symptoms were very standard. Both of, both of us experienced by mid-April 2020 that our symptoms went away with the exception of my nerve tingling. And the way I describe it is if you ever had an Alka-Seltzer and you put your finger, you know, like in the, the fizzing water and you kind of feel that fizzing against your skin, I just have that 24 seven, uh, you know, every nerve ending in my body and it kicked in right when I got COVID and it's just never gone away. I can work, I can exercise, I can sleep, but it's real. And so I, I dealt with it for a few months. I eventually decided that I should see a neurologist just to make sure there wasn't anything more serious I needed to pay attention to. And I went to GW and a neurologist there gave me, you know, some pretty clear and direct advice. He said, I'm going to, I'm going to give you some uh, good news and some bad news. The good news is neurological after effects from viruses um, usually don't get worse. The bad news is it may never go away. And that's, been true. Uh, two years later, it feels exactly the same as it felt when I first got it. I didn't really talk about it much because I was aware that many people, and you, you've been talking to them, Francis, are dealing with really, really severe, you know, uh, fatigue. Or, you know, I talked to a mother whose son was 35, was about to finish a PhD, and had COVID and then developed such intense light sensitivity, he can't even be in a room with the lights on or the windows not shaded, and even working on a computer screen causes him pain because of his light sensitivity. So when I started to hear from people who had more serious symptoms than mine, and they reported not being believed, that they would try to describe this to friends or family or providers, and they were either not believed, there's no such thing as long COVID, or, oh, you probably have anxiety, can we prescribe you anti-anxiety medication. Somebody told me that they had no sense of taste or smell months after, and somebody tried to prescribe them an antidepressant. And they said, look, I'm in a good mood. I just can't taste or smell anything. Don't give me an antidepressant for this, you know, this neurological symptom. So when I started to hear from people who weren't believed, I thought, well, then maybe what I should do is explain my own symptoms. They're not bad, they're not debilitating, but they do make me believe when people tell me they're dealing with long COVID, I believe them because I'm dealing with it in my own way. And yeah, there's been some negative, but I think much more uh, the reaction I've gotten is thanks for talking about that because I'm dealing with it too. It's good to know that there's policymakers who understand this, believe it, and are, you know, and are working with others to try to find answers. We've had some other bad, poorly understood conditions, probably post-viral conditions, like chronic fatigue, fatigue syndrome, otherwise, yes. otherwise known as ME-CFS. Has it made you change your thinking about those conditions and want to invest more money in researching them? Well, no, it's a great question, Francis. I, and of course, I knew about those conditions, but I didn't know enough about them to know, okay, so this, is, this can happen after a virus, Lyme disease. A lot of people who have Lyme disease deal with, you know, they're, they're generally cured, but then they have some long symptoms after and I, I i'm on the health committee in the senate so uh, you know maybe i should have figured all this out before but um but no i think i now see having been to a neurologist and understanding this is neurological after effects are not the most common thing when you deal with viruses but they're not uncommon either they happen and so the bill that we put together senators duckworth and markey and me it's it's about research not only into long COVID 
but to other post-viral conditions. Um, and I think, and this is what I say to long COVID uh, patients, I say, because they sometimes say to me, you know, why do I want to share this information? There's probably nothing that can be done. And I've said, look, not only is that not true, I bet we can do something to help long COVID sufferers, but if you hang in with us and participate in research and share your experiences, we might learn a lot about other post-viral conditions to be able to help a lot of folks that have kind of um, sadly kind of walked in this, you know, twilight world where they're dealing with symptoms that are either poorly understood or not, or, or maybe even disbelieved. We only have a few minutes left and I'm not going to let you go without asking you about a few political questions. And of course, the upcoming yeah. midterms are of great interest. Um, some polling suggests the Democrats could lose both the House and the Senate. How concerned are you? Well, you know, I think you do have to say there's a historical norm here and the historical norm is midterms tend to go bad for the party in power. I mean, and I, I've seen that, um, you know, I, I ran for re-election in a midterm when President Trump was in office. And, and I had a tailwind when I was running for re-election. I've also been a Democratic Party chair during President Obama's first midterm, and that was a really tough midterm. So the, the norm is, the Vegas odds are, okay, the party in power has challenges in midterms. Um, that doesn't have to be the case. It's not an iron law of nature. I will tell you this, if the COVID numbers continue to come down uh, and people feel like they're living more and more normally, um, and we continue to see significant strength in the economy, and we're seeing job growth, wage growth, GDP growth, also price growth, inflation, we gotta deal with that. If people do feel like though, after two years and nearly a million people dead, we are returning back to greater normalcy every day, that could create a, a feeling of psychological uplift that could cut against the midterm headwind. So, you know, I think I think the biggest factor in terms of the midterms is probably less how people run a campaign than uh, do Americans feel like, hey, we're, we're, we're in the midst of a good American comeback story after two tough years. If they do feel that, that can work to the uh, President Biden, the Democrats advantage. If people are sour and angry come September and October, it's not going to be a good midterm. President Biden's uh, polling approval rating has been very low, like 33%, I think, recently. Why do you think only a third of Americans approve of how he's managed the country recently? You know, I'm sure there's a, there's a lot of factors, and I'm an expert on Virginia, not necessarily on everywhere, but I still think an awful lot of it is just this hangover of, I mean, this has been the two toughest years, I'm 64, two toughest years in some ways for our country during my 64 years. If you had told us, Francis, in March of 2020, when COVID really started to hit, or in February, that a million Americans would die in two years, I think virtually everybody would have said, there's no way that's gonna happen. There's no way that's gonna happen. And yet, we'll pass a million deaths here probably within the next week or so. And then you add the job loss and, and businesses closed. and. And, and the isolation of not being able to go to a friend's funeral because the friend never had the funeral because we were trying to not do big events indoors. I mean, just the combined weight of all of it is has led to a really high level of anxiety and just pain and suffering. And so I, I think when the circumstances like that, you know, people are going to look at anybody in political leadership position and they're not going to be happy. But if um, 
I am right and COVID continues to come down and people feel like they're living more normally, I think that there can be an uplift. And frankly, nobody can give a comeback story better than Joe Biden, both personally and politically. <laughs> He's been counted out a lot and, and been really down and had to fight his way back. And he, I, I've seen him even recently in dealing with uh, the family of a doctor from Charlottesville, Lorna Breen, who died by suicide early in the pandemic. We got a bill passed in her honor to try to make sure our healthcare workers are getting the mental health resources they need. And I just saw Joe Biden, the man, deal with that family in a way that, hey, look, it's a painful time, but um, we don't have to be defined by our pain. We can, we can be defined by what we're doing to, to make life better for others. And so I wouldn't count Joe Biden out uh, between now and November in terms of his being able to make that, tell that comeback story if what I'm predicting about health stats going forward uh, turns out to be true. One last question before I let you go. Um, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin has been raising his national profile recently. Do you see him as the future of the Republican Party? I think that is, anytime I try to opine about the Republican Party, I invariably get it completely wrong. I'm not a Republican. So, you know, I sort of, <laughs> I don't sort of think like them and they don't think like me. In fact, I can't think of a single time in the last 20 years when I correctly predicted who the Republican Party would nominate to be their presidential candidate. I'm always wrong. Um, I, I will say one thing that Governor Youngkin did that's going to be interesting to see whether others pursue it, and if so, how, is this issue of holding President Trump close, but not too close. Um, you saw Governor Youngkin and his campaign seldom talk about Trump, but also not actively push him away. So I would, I would say he was kind of softly hugging Trump, um, but not talking too loudly about doing it. That is a very, very delicate line to walk. Now, I'm watching a lot of campaigns around the country, and I still think most GOP are trying to sort of, you know, dance in attendance before President Trump to get his attention and his endorsement. But this, this question about how you deal with the fact that some Republicans aren't so wild about Trump, even if, if, even if the majority are, that was something that uh, Glenn Youngkin as a candidate he walked that line pretty carefully. It's going to be interesting to see whether others try the same thing. Senator Tim Kaine, thank you so much for your words of wisdom about long COVID and also for trying to interpret the Republican Party for us. Thank you for joining Washington. Thank you, Francis. Glad we could talk. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.